All right, let's go and get started. We got four of the minor prophets to do today. Uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. There is uh, handouts in the back if you need it. Uh, let's start though by doing some prayer requests. Does anybody have anything we want to be praying about? Congratulations. Yeah. The Children's Hunger Fund initiative. Okay. You want to talk a little bit about that? Um, Nancy and I had a chance a few years ago to work a lot with a branch that was up in the Chicago area. Uh, the distinctive between Children's Hunger Fund and other humanitarian efforts is Children's Hunger Fund is very focused on the gospel being part of this whole process. Hmm. And they have churches that apply to them to be part of the distribution of these food packs. And so they have to meet real strict standards as far as doctrine and gospel because the point is the local church is going to take those individual food packs and take them to families that are in their community and distribute them at the person's home. And that's the door or the bridge to get to talk to people about the gospel and to develop a relationship. And so that's the big distinctive between Children's Hunger Fund and other humanitarian things. Um, Francis Chan, the pastor author, was one of the board members originally. Um, so if you've ever read any of his stuff, you know where he's at. But the, it's, it's very theologically correct and gospel focused. Yeah. And so our church, uh, specifically through the missions committee, is uh, kind of doing an initiative for that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. through the missions committee, we're going to be packing all those food pack boxes that people take with them and then they're going to get brought back in two weeks and then the missions committee is going to ship them back to Children's Hunger Fund for them to distribute domestically. Yep. Uh, eventually, New Community <coughs> Church, I guess, is going to want to um, do that same kind of thing locally as far as distribution. distribution. Yep. Cool. Very cool. Vince, this is what the box looks like. And it's right at the welcome desk. And they give you the list of things to put in it. And I think it's like $10. About to, 12 yeah. yeah. Yeah, to fill the whole thing. And you can take as many boxes as you want. So, pretty simple way to do He also has a container that will hold four boxes. So you can do yeah. anything mm. for. wanted to do three. Yeah, cool. Yeah, but you can do yeah. however many it, it sounds kind of. Um, wasteful to fill a box here and ship it back to the distribution center but they also have an arrangement with ups for very highly discounted shipping rates to get them back and forth around the country cool make sure you pick up a little flyer that has the layout the layout the and the grocery like list yeah because there's specific sizes and items that yeah. they want in that box cool any other requests? Um, um, how much is to ship the box? They, we don't pay for that. 
the Children's Hunger Fund does. They've got this arrangement with UPS. Oh. So all we need to do is fill the box and take it to UPS, and then they take it back. Or bring it back to the church. Yes. Yeah, you would just bring it back to the church. Yeah, you bring yeah. it here, and then the mission committee will take care of getting it to UPS. Because when we did that um, the first time, it was saying on the bottom that like it was like eight dollars. Oh, you you can donate eight dollars to the organization to cover shipping if you want to, the, instead of filling a box or in addition to filling the box, they'd be grateful for that. Oh, okay. But but it's not required. Our goal right now is just to fill the boxes. Okay, pray with me, please. Or did you have, <coughs> sorry, do you have something, yes. Jean? Yeah. My brother's coming to visit a little bit this week, and he's not a Christian. Okay. And every time I see him, I think, oh, maybe I'll say something worthwhile. I don't know that I ever do. <laughs> but. Okay. What's his name? John. John. Great. Okay. Uh, please pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for... This morning of worship, thank you for the rain. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and um, uh, worship you. You're so deserving of it. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for um, a successful delivery for the Rosses and uh, just pray for uh, continued uh, uh, growth for the baby and um, for, um, uh, for mother as well and uh, health there. Uh, thank you so much. And Father, we... Uh, Lift up these other requests to you. We pray for Grayson. Pray for a successful surgery on Tuesday. Pray for some clarity uh, for Adam and Emily after that. And um, uh, just give them strength and peace during a, a very difficult time. Father, we pray for John. Pray that um, your gospel would come to him um, very clearly uh, in some way. And uh, pray for opportunities for Gene to, to, to deliver that to him if possible. And uh, Father, we also pray for this uh, Children's Hunger Fund initiative. Pray that there would be a good response here from our folks, but um, just pray for, uh, we, we would ask that more and more people would not only um, be fed, but that would hear the gospel uh, through this uh, awesome opportunity. And Father, we pray for this time together this morning. Pray that we can honor you as we learn from your word and uh, pray that we can have attentive hearts uh, to your message, and we say all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, so let's, uh, we have one more announcement. Sarah's going to give oh, us an yeah. announcement. Um, they're having next Saturday a specific grief share event called Surviving the Holidays. So the, you, you don't have to be a part of the ongoing grief share <coughs> class to attend. Um, but it's also a good opportunity if you know somebody who might be Fearing the holiday season after the loss of a loved one, it's a great kind of just one-stop opportunity to kind of prepare for that. So. Okay, uh, so let's get going here with uh, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. Uh, four books this week, but um, four, uh, four prophets this week. Uh, some of these are pretty small. Obadiah is actually the smallest uh, book in the Old Testament. It rivals 
you know, Jude and some of the second Johns for how small it is. So uh, we'll get through it very quickly. Um, but uh, we'll see here in a second how it connects to Amos, which we just studied at the end of last week. And I think you'll uh, hopefully continue to see this argument that I've been making about um, the collection of the 12 and how um, they really fit together as one unit and they kind of really flow, uh, even though the order of them doesn't really match chronologically about when these prophets were uh, doing their ministry, they actually, from a um, literary standpoint, actually flow very well the way that they're put, placed together. So I think there's some intention there uh, that we need to pay attention to and the contextuality that arises when you, we um, read these uh, together like this. So uh, Obadiah itself is like, um, you know, I think 21 verses, but then uh, we'll study that and then we'll connect it with Amos. Um, so Obadiah, book of Obadiah, there's a prophet named Obadiah who's considered to be the author. Um, his time period in the book's date are unknown. Uh, some would argue for an early date of around 840 BC, uh, but some would date it as late as 585. There's um, a reference uh, in the book uh, 11 through 14 about an invasion. Um, so it really just depends on what, what invasion uh, we're referring to here. Because um, if it's could be an earlier one, could be a later one. We just don't know a whole lot about this book, but that's okay. Uh, we still have the theological truth and it fits well with uh, this larger theme that we're seeing in the uh, Minor Prophets, which is the restoration of the people will come through the Messiah. We saw that Hosea uh, chapter three, four through five. We'll reference that again uh, today. Okay, so let's uh, jump in here uh, with Obadiah. Obadiah receives a vision about the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M. Now, if you remember, uh, we talked about Edom a little bit last week, and Edom is an actual nation that came from Esau, uh, but uh, it's also uh, the Hebrew word for humanity. So there's a... Um, an additional spiritual significance to talking about Edom. Uh, Amos talked about him, and now Obadiah is uh, speaking about Edom almost exclusively here. Um, so he receives a vision about the nation of Edom. God says that the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Edom has become obsessed with the loftiness of their fortress. but God will bring them down to earth. They will be ruined and ambushed. God will destroy the wise men from Edom. They were harsh to Israel in battle and stood aloof when Jerusalem was taken over. Uh, so we got some continued themes here that we saw in Joel, Joel 3.19 and Amos 1.11. Uh, both refer to this kind of being aloof when Jerusalem was taken over, uh, judgment of the nations um, that we can see from, you know, the, the Genesis 12 theme of uh, those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. So God's judgment, that's the blank there, God's judgment will fall on every nation in the day of the Lord. So I think, again, we have this connection of Edom representing humanity, being connected to all the nations. He says that, quote, your dealings will return 
on your own head. God says that Zion will be holy. That's the blank there. God says that Zion will be holy and that Edom will see Judah return to the land. God will judge the mountain of Esau with his kingdom. Edom's pride prevents them from righteousness before God. Uh, only he establishing his kingdom on earth will bring any blessing to the Gentiles. So they've kind of given their attitude or their attempt at this, which is a prideful uh, establishment of their own kingdom. And God's message to them is only my kingdom on earth and you a part of it is that's the only path forward. So the issue he's dealing with here specifically is their pride and their arrogance. Um, so we've got, you know, 21 verses here. seems like a pretty small, insignificant um, country but, um, or our nation, but the significance here is that God will not let anyone get away with pride, not even a small, insignificant nation like Edom. Uh, so no pride escapes the view of God. So for discussion, have you ever allowed pride to enter into your life and relationship with God? How do we guard against pride in our lives and continually view ourselves as, as below God? Any? Sorry. No, that's all right. I didn't think that question was that funny. I was very um, proud to say that no, that happened. <laughs> what I said really to her was not much has changed. You know? yeah. Yeah, so how do we guard against pride in our lives and continually view ourselves as below God? Any, any thoughts here? Pride before God. That's the main time focusing on the attributes of God. That's all it takes. Yeah. Mm. Just keep reading Romans over and Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Say by constantly evaluating ourselves and, and the, the, the greatest is in Constantly asking God, God, show me, and have this close connection with Him. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Which is the actual opposite of the pride, humbling ourselves. Mm-hmm. Staying humble, humbling ourselves before the Lord. That's right. Yeah. Constantly remind yourself that He's holy. Uh, so I do want to um, talk about, you know, kind of on a big picture perspective, this connection with Amos. Uh, if you read these two books together, uh, we can see kind of a larger picture here. Um, in Amos, if you remember last week, the salvation of Israel is based on the Davidic promises and restoration will come through the Messiah. So that Amos clearly continued that theme that we saw at the beginning of the Minor Prophets, Hosea 3, 4, and 5. The restoration will come through the future Davidic Messiah. Uh, through intertextuality with the Pentateuch, in verse 9, 12 of Amos, the reader sees that the Messiah will rule over a remnant of Edom, or humanity, in his eternal kingdom. So then Obadiah comes right after that. 
Again, this idea of contextuality, Obadiah comes right after that, and it has the judgment of Edom, and then the establishment of the Messianic kingdom there in the last three verses. So Israel's possession of Edom means that Edom, or humanity, has membership in this kingdom. The nation of Edom will be no more, verse 18, because their exiles will be a part of God's kingdom. We see that in verse 20. So the Messianic kingdom will uh, reign over Edom. So you connect them together, you put them together, and you see that Amos Obadiah shows that Gentiles will be included in God's Messianic kingdom. Let's turn to um, Acts. Acts 15. If you remember this um, chapter in Acts 15, this is um, the Jerusalem Council. And of course, there's a lot going on here where um, several of the uh, uh, disciples of Jesus, not just of the 12, but you know, this kind of original group of disciples have stayed in Jerusalem. And James, the brother of Jesus, is the head of this church. And they have this council here because they're trying to determine what what do they think about all that's happening um, with the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles are the ones that are coming to know the Lord in droves, right? Uh, through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and others. And then uh, Peter's coming back and he's reporting on these things as well. And so they're trying to decide what, what to think of this and what to make of, uh, do they, what do they require of the Gentiles to be a part of the church? And James' argument here is that, well, we don't, we don't require anything. It's the gospel. Um, now, um, he, he does say at one point, because it, was so, it would be so difficult for Jewish Christians, we would ask the Gentiles not to eat certain things, right? So uh, that's more of a liberty, you know, a, um, a grace towards others kind of an ask. But um, he's making the argument, and he makes it, uh, he, he connects this back to the Old Testament and specifically this argument from Amos. Um, so let's, uh, could I get a volunteer to read verses 13 through 19 of Acts chapter 15? Any volunteers? Okay. okay. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will, re I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind who will seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Yeah, so that's his argument. It's like this, this is foreseen in the Old Testament, that Gentiles would be a part of the kingdom. Now, so we do see this idea of um, Paul uses the term mystery specifically to refer to the church. So let's just, we just want to make sure that we have the clear distinction here, right? Uh, the mystery that was not in the Old Testament is the concept of the church, right? That we have this kind of um, uh, organism that represents those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit and these local manifestations of it. That was a mystery in the Old Testament not spoken of, right? But the idea that Gentiles would be in the Messianic kingdom is not a mystery. That is clearly here uh, in the Minor Prophets. So 
I just want to make sure we have the distinction here. This kind of, I know they're related, right? Gentiles in the Messianic kingdom. That's a related concept to the church, but uh, we didn't really know how it was going to happen just by reading the Old Testament. Uh, you got to get to the New Testament to understand how, how that's actually going to function. And of course, we see that in the church. So any questions, comments about this, um, this concept, Gentiles in the Messianic kingdom? And of course, Paul talks about a lot of this kind of stuff. Gentiles are grafted in. But these are, these are the promises made to the Israelites about their kingdom, right? It's a um, the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. That is primarily Israel. Gentiles are included in it and grafted into it. So, any other questions, comments? Okay. Uh, well, let's keep going here. Let's get into Jonah. Um, I think that the concept here, um, again, this concept of contextuality, how these are ordered together, how we can read this all together in kind of a, a retrofitted larger story, I think that's relevant here uh, for this next book, Jonah, okay? Because uh, it's certainly dealing with uh, the concept of uh, uh, the relationship between uh, the message of God and Gentiles, okay? So uh, Jonah, book of Jonah was written by Jonah sometime around uh, 760 uh, BC. He is the uh, son of Amittai. Uh, and of course, we have a, a great example here of um, God using a prophet through his experience, not just his message, Right, so we're gonna. There was this is probably the most famous experience of a prophet uh, we see here. Now, I did um, did want to mention uh, if you haven't signed up, I think everyone here has probably. But if you haven't signed up on the app, uh, on the app, I did put an additional resource of a paper I wrote a few years ago about the theology of Jonah. Uh, again, just kind of as I you hear me say a lot, probably broken record. I think. Uh, all of these books are theological. You can kind of look at them not just as a historical record of what's happening, but um, actually a theological message for faith communities and any faith communities, including Christians. So um, anyway, I would encourage you to, to read that if you want to go a little deeper into this book. It is a fascinating uh, little, little book, I think. Okay, so uh, Jonah 1 and 2, uh, a message from God comes to a man named Jonah. God tells him to go to Nineveh, N-I-N-E-V-E-H, which is um, at the time the greatest city in, in Assyria. It's really the capital of uh, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Uh, so God tells him to go to Nineveh and cry against it. God shows concern for even the most ruthless and evil nation, Assyria. Um, and uh, Isaiah 19 speaks to that as well. Uh, Jonah disobeys and boards a ship headed for Tarshish. So he's headed in, um, not in that direction at all, <laughs> kind of almost the exact opposite direction. Uh, he just, just way away from there. He boards a ship headed for Tarshish. Now at this point in the narrative, we do not know why he disobeys, but he does disobey. Uh, God brings a storm on the boat and the other men aboard find out that the storm is because of Jonah. They pick up Jonah and throw him into the water. 
pleading with God for mercy. When the storm stops, the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Um, so this is, that's a little interesting kind of thing here because we we're kind of seeing right there demonstrated in real time, God giving grace to Gentiles, right? Um, so very interesting. Uh, while in the water, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. So the, again, this, this, um, an exercise of a prophet. In this instance, God really showing his amazing sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. He uses a giant fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, is this, is this a whale? Uh, is this some kind of really giant fish that maybe doesn't exist anymore? I, who knows, right? Um, uh, I, I'm open to anything really here. The, the point of the story here is that God obviously made this happen. So, um, from there, Jonah composes a Psalm praising God for delivering him from the distress in the water. And he, I mean, by, by saying this, by composing a psalm in this way, he's not, doesn't seem like he's thinking that being swallowed is a bad thing. He's actually thinking it as deliverance from God, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Um, so he mentions that idols cannot do what God has done and says salvation is from the Lord. So I think earlier in the story, there was a reference to the sailors on the boat who worshipped idols. Well, now he's, he's saying very clear, well, idols cannot do this. <laughs> uh, so God has the fish vomit Jonah onto dry land. Okay, so Jonah 3 and 4, God again tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes there and tells the people that Nineveh will be destroyed. So this time he actually obeys. Amazingly, the people listen and believe God's message. They humble themselves and repent. The king instructs the people to turn away from their wickedness. God's response is to have mercy on the people. So again, we see grace. Um, and a relationship between God and Gentiles here, at least on a limited basis. So this is consistent with the other prophets who show that prophecy is intended to bring repentance, not destruction. Now, interesting, the timing, right? Where I mean, I'm dating this 760 BC, you know, certainly long before Assyria comes in and wipes out the Northern Kingdom. So, but there, there is, does seem to be this kind of moment of repentance and grace from God. Uh, sorry, uh, let's see, where were we? Um, yeah, uh, the, the king instructs the people to turn away from their wickedness. God's response is to have mercy on the people. This is consistent with other prophets who show that mercy is intended to bring repentance, not destruction. Uh, God's mercy makes Jonah upset. 
It's an interesting turn to the story. God makes mer God's mercy makes Jonah upset. He tells God that this is why he fled, because he knew he was gracious and compassionate. There's a uh, common phrase in scripture, intertextuality. We can see this many other places, including the Pentateuch. God is gracious and compassionate. Um, let's actually read this. Uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4, 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So um, I know when I was a kid, of course I wasn't in a biblical church, but um, still when I was a kid, I, I thought this story was about him being afraid to talk about God or afraid to evangelize, right? That that's what this is about. I don't, I don't want to be an evangelist, so I'm going to run away and get on a boat. And that's clearly not what's happening here. Um, he, he, he disobeyed not because he was afraid of, to evangelize or afraid of God's call or anything like that. He was afraid that they would actually repent, and he didn't want that to happen. Um, yeah. Yep. His way is the destruction of evil. Yeah. There's, a, there's yeah. another aspect to that. Yeah. yeah. If you if you do research on who the Syrians are, right. you're like, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wrong. Yeah. But I totally agree with that. Yeah. 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 The Assyrians were one of the, the, the first empire that we really have historical evidence for, and they are the absolute worst human beings that have probably ever walked the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. They tortured people for fun, arguably. Um, they definitely did it as political terror, but they seemed to kind of enjoy it. Yeah. And and they they kind of they just really enjoyed conquering people, breaking their things, and taking their stuff. Yeah. yeah. So when Jonah's told to go rescue, to go, to go and tell these people they're going to be destroyed, he's like, yeah. the only reason you yeah. can send me. Is if you're gonna save them, yeah. you wouldn't send me there and tell them this, and then destroy them. You just wipe them out. Yeah. You, and so I have made the decision that you were wrong, <laughs> and it, it's more. It's he's basically telling God it's immoral for you to save these people. Right. Yeah. And God's like, dude, there's 120,000 kids there and some cows. Yeah. At the end, that, that's literally how this book ends. Yeah. It's, right. You know, you don't know how Jonah whether he comes around or not, but God's response to all of right. Jonah's complaining is there's 120,000 kids and some cows. Yep. Yep. That, that's, that's what's important yeah. is that I show the human race that I am merciful. Yep. It doesn't matter what I, you've done, I will forgive you. And I do think it's interesting that Jonah 
clearly knows that's the character of God, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. And he says it, right? Because um, he says he because he knew he was gracious and compassionate. So Jonah then goes outside the city to wait. There, God grows a plant to give him shade. When the plant dies, Jonah is upset again. Uh, he compares the plant to the people of Nineveh, saying that Jonah had nothing to do with the plant's creation. Yet he cares about it. In the same way, God has compassion on the people who he does have something to do with. So it's interesting you mentioned how it, how it ends. Uh, I think it's verse 11 is the last verse. Um, he ends with the question, should I, not love, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? And we don't get Jonah's response. So it makes, it makes the question a direct question to the reader. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? So that's an interesting question to, to ponder. Uh, in a specific uh, speech he's giving or a parable? Yeah, I'm, I need to try to remember this, but I mean, just be thinking about like a sermon I heard on this or something like that. Yeah, that's it. I don't know off the top of my head. He references Jonah on the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. That people want a sign just like Jonah was three days. Uh, or that may be the Sermon on the Plain. I don't think it's yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing I was thinking about, Mark, was I'm reading Acts 9, how Jesus comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go heal Saul of his blindness. Mm-hmm. And to Ananias says, wait, I've heard all the things he's done against you. You, you can't really ask me to do this. So it's the same kind of um, perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Well, uh, look at the yeah, Apostle Paul, when he was Saul. Yeah. So Jonah shows us God's love for all people. We should have the same love and desire for spreading truth to all nations, races, backgrounds, and avoid the attitude that Jesus showed himself showed. Uh, do you ever have the attitude of Jonah towards others? Have you ever had such a dislike for someone that you don't want to give them the truth? In what ways can we demonstrate a godly love for all nations and peoples? Any thoughts here? Again, this, this fits with the you know, this, it's kind of rolling, right? We saw the beginning. Restoration is going to come through the Messiah. Now we've kind of expanded this. Amos and Obadiah, this is not just for the Jews. It's also for the Gentiles, this restoration, this Messianic kingdom. Now we've got a direct challenge left at the end of this book um, by the, the author uh, for the reader. Um, so how, how do we respond to the fact that God um, is gracious and compassionate, and how do we respond to the challenge to share the gospel with everyone? Yeah. I think it's also a challenge to to share the gospel regardless of like sin categories, hmm. or, like how bad you think someone is. Hmm. Kind of to the point that Nathan was bringing up, how just how evil the Ninevites were, and that he he didn't think they deserved mercy. So it may not. We may not see someone as undeserving because of their background or their nationality or something, but maybe just because of the amount of sin we know they've engaged in or the kind of sin, that can make it hard for us to see them as worthy of mercy, as if yeah. there was such a thing. Right, <laughs> right, right. Or as if we deserved it better than right. they do. As if right. we were the ones to get to decide right. who gets mercy. Right. Mark. Yeah. Um, we had our two grandsons yesterday, and the older guy made a comment 
that kind of reflected our American society right now hmm. about destroying someone. And we had to stop them and say, hey, you know, we're all made. God made us all. God loves us all. We're sinners. But, you know, we're all faced with that every day in our society, that if somebody doesn't agree with me, that's my enemy, which is wrong. Yeah. Sin is sin. There, there's no degree yeah. to it. Yeah. We're all guilty. Yeah. Any thoughts here? Yeah. I would like to add, remembering that God is holy, and every single human being is his creation. He loved us, didn't matter what we did. Mm -hmm. We must remember he didn't just love me. We do deserve it, right? Right? Yeah. Right? Well, we're acting as small g gods. You know, we're making determination on, on the destiny and the, the um, deservedness of an individual. Yeah. And I can, I can see at times where I get so frustrated with the certain sins that the, the world is coaching down our throats where I look at somebody and say, well, they're caught up in this sin and I know God is angry at it. A lot of times he turns them over. He says, I, I, you want this? I just give up on it. But that's for him to determine on who he's giving up on. It's not for me. Yeah. And I have to keep reminding myself that, no, I don't get to make that decision. I don't pick and choose who's God's, who God is going to save. Yeah. He picks and chooses. Yeah. I have to be his, his mouthpiece. Yeah, that's good. All right. Uh, good discussion there. Let's uh, keep going here. Uh, continuing the theme of restoration through the Messiah, let's talk about Micah. A um, uh, book of Micah was written by the prophet Micah sometime around 700 BC. He's believed to be a contemporary of Isaiah. Um, so let's look at Micah 1 through 3. A word from God comes to the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah uh, gives a message to Samaria and Jerusalem saying that saying the Lord will come down against the people for quote the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. God says that the idols of the land will be smashed. He gives a list of cities that will be destroyed. Micah gives a woe to oppressors. Uh, these are oppressors in Israel, uh, not in Assyria and Babylon, but this specific woe is to oppressors in Israel. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos all give woes against the evil as well. Those who willfully deceive God 
and others are prideful. Uh, and my language here is probably not good here. Those who willfully deceive God and others and, and are prideful are specifically named by Micah. Uh, the people have been deceived themselves by liars who are acting like spokesmen. The rulers of the people are denounced. These leaders, along with the prophets, twist everything that is straight. That's the blank there. That is straight. So, um, Micah is spokesman here would imply they're acting as spokesmen of God? Yeah. Uh, the rulers of the people are denounced. These leaders, along with the prophets, twist everything that is straight. They fill the land with bloodshed. Therefore, quote, on account of Zion, you will be plowed as a field. This is obviously a reference to the, to the exile. And again, destruction must come first, right? That's the theme we saw in Jeremiah. It's continuing here in the Minor Prophets. Okay, so there's some bad news there. Now we got some good news. Um, Micah 4 through 5. Micah moves on to the last days where peaceful renewal will come from the judgment described. In imagery consistent with Isaiah 2, Isaiah 19, and Isaiah 25, Micah says that in the last days, Jerusalem will become the dwelling place of God. Quote, and he will be judge, and he will judge between many peoples, that's the blank there, many peoples, and render decisions for mighty distant nations. This will be for a remnant. There's that word again. We saw it first in Isaiah, this idea of a remnant. Uh, this will be for a remnant who has walked quote, in the name of the Lord our God, instead of in the ways of idols. This remnant will be lame and will have to go into exile in Babylon. Uh, others will claim victory over them, but God will be working to build up the remnant to one day be able to pulverize many peoples. Uh, this will come with the leadership of the ruler of Israel, who will be born in Bethlehem. So again, continuing the theme of the 12, restoration will come through the Messiah. We have a very specific prophecy about where he's going to come from. That's Bethlehem. Uh, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Uh, the necessity of this ruler's leadership is consistent with the book of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 through 12. His spiritual origin is also expressed in Isaiah 9. That's where he talks about him being mighty and the prince of peace, etc. Uh, additionally, his birthplace of Bethlehem is seen as a specific prerequisite of this ruler in Jesus' time. We saw that in Matthew 2, you know, many fulfilled prophecies that Matthew's going through there. He says, you know, he's born in Bethlehem, as the prophet said. Uh, 
Um, he will bring peace and strength as he shepherds his flock. Uh, then the remnant will be truly special among all nations. So we've got here um, through four and five, we've got five pronouncements of salvation. So verses one through five of chapter four, we've got uh, uh, the nations at Zion. That's four, one through five. Um, we've got a regathered remnant in uh, four, uh, six through seven. Then we've got a victorious remnant in verses 8 through 13. Then we've got the ruler who's, you know, the, the, who the renewal will come through is the ruler in 5, 1 through 5. And then all the nations of the earth, 5, 5 through 9. So the remnant will truly be special among all nations, but God will have to cut off all idols, forts, and witchcraft from the remnant. Their living in peace will not include any of these sins of the past. Okay, to finish up Micah chapter 6 through 7, God gives an indictment against his people. That's the blank there, indictment. Even though God has delivered them, they have sinned. God expresses that he does not require much of man, quote, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is a um, very powerful passage. Let's uh, read this. Uh, could I get a volunteer read verses 6 through 8 of chapter 6? Micah chapter 6. Any volunteers? Three verses? I can't. Okay. Remind me what it was. Six, six through eight. Okay, great. What, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah, thank you. So this is not, at this point, he's not trying to negate the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. He's not saying you're not under this, you're not supposed to do this anymore. He's simply saying that through the restoration of the Messiah in the future, um, this restoration of the kingdom, this is clearly going to be the norm, is that... Um, this is what I will require of you. And he's also suggesting, I think, uh, something very similar to the end of Leviticus, which, if you remember, we had this pattern of, you know, constant, not constant, but repeated failure, even though all these stipulations were given. At the end of Leviticus, uh, there, Leviticus 26, 27, uh, he very clearly says, what I really require of you is humility before me. That's the real key to actually being obedient to the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Stipulations, is humility before me. So this is very consistent with that message. Um, so again, not, not a negation of stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant at this point, but rather trying to call the people to justice and humility as part of their worship. It's about their hearts. That's the message here. Your heart is the key. Um, so the consequence of their actions is their destruction. 
by other armies. That's the blank there, by other armies. Micah represents the remnant in despair, suggesting that no one can be trusted and that the godly person has perished from the land. God will continue to be a light for the remnant and will trample upon its enemies one day. Uh, Israel will no longer have boundaries. Uh, nations will see and be ashamed. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread. Micah finishes by stating that this renewal of the remnant is all because of God's unchanging love. And also says, uh, verse uh, 7:15, that we can rely on these promises because of what he's done in the past. It's a reference to his character and what, he's, what he has done and, and been like in the past. Therefore, you can rely on these promises about what will happen in the future. He will have compassion and, quote, cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. He will keep the promises to Abraham and the forefathers made long ago. So we have uh, the message of the restoration of the people through the Messiah. We have the message of the heart is what I'm truly care about. And then we have this message of this is who I am. This is my character and I will follow through on this. I will keep the promises that I made to Abraham and forefathers made long ago. This, this Everything that's going to happen in the future is because of my promises that I've made before and because of who I am, uh, the consistency of my character. So um, Micah provides uh, a picture of God's renewal of man. God must cleanse sin, yet he, will still, he still provides a way to negate it through the Davidic ruler. We must follow this ruler in order to be like God and truly be renewed from sin. For discussion, it is, it is, it's often easy to call yourself a Christian, but do you follow Christ in all things? Have you allowed him to truly renew your behavior Monday through sun, Saturday, your marriage, your thought life? Again, this gets into this. Micah's really speaking about the heart. That's what I'm, I'm really concerned about is the heart. Um, uh, not the, not the, the methods and the stipulations, you know, just obeying the stipulations, but actually having uh, a heart that obeys God um, all the time. Uh, any thoughts here? The message of Micah. Well, just like it says, uh, you should love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with your, with all your soul and with your, with all your mind. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, Deuteronomy 6, yeah. It's good. Anybody else? Message of Micah here. Okay. Um, let's, uh, next week I'll talk a little bit more about um, some of the ideas here from uh, the renewal coming through the Davidic ruler and how that connects with um, the kingdom of God. So I'll talk a, a little bit more about that next week as we continue through these. But let's finish up with Nahum. Um, 
Pretty small book here, only three chapters. Uh, book of Nahum was written by Nahum sometime between 661 and uh, 612. Um, let's see, what, I have, what, what is my note here? Uh, 612 is when, uh, the 612 is when Assyria falls. So uh, I believe this would have to be written by then uh, because we're still talking about Nineveh here. Um, so uh, this is after, of course, um, the northern kingdom is, is uh, kind of exiled or destroyed by Assyria in 722 BC. And Assyria is kind of the dominant empire there, uh, but they fall in, seven, in 612. Um, so again, after the northern kingdom um, has been uh, defeated uh, by Assyria. So, you know, a uh, hundred years later. So this is in this time before Assyria falls uh, and after they have come and destroyed the northern kingdom. So uh, let's see. Uh, Nahum 1, Nahum the Elkishite, um, which means his hometown is Elkish. We don't actually know precisely where this is, but uh, Nahum the Elkishite receives an oracle from God regarding Nineveh. Uh, if you remember Jonah, Nineveh is the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Uh, he starts by describing how awesome God is. God is not only jealous, he is patient and just. God is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we are referencing back to his character uh, that we saw in some of these other books, including Jonah. As Jonah has shown, God is slow to anger, reaching out to challenge Nineveh to repent. However, they have returned to their evil ways. Again, this is 100 years later, right? So they've returned to their evil ways, and God cannot, quote, leave the guilty unpunished. God is in control of the earth and nature, not everyone can stand before God and his anger, but God is good. Nineveh has, quote, plotted evil against the Lord, and God will put an end to what they have done. Assyria's stronghold is the blank there. Assyria's stronghold on others will soon be broken, says the Lord. Uh, God says that he will cut off idols from them and that he will prepare your grave. Uh, good news and peace, those are the two blanks there, good news and peace are coming to Judah. As, quote, never again will the wicked one pass through you. So the point here is God's universal judgment on other nations like Nineveh would result in the salvation of his own people. Um, we'll see this as we continue Habakkuk next week as well. Similar theme there. 
Uh, Nahum's language is very similar to that of Isaiah 51 and 52, indicating that God is able to defeat Assyria, just like in the time of Isaiah. Uh, Nahum 2. Uh, Nahum then describes the overthrow of Nineveh. Nahum says God, quote, will restore the splendor of Jacob. These are God's promises at work here. Uh, Genesis 12, 3, bless the nations who bless you, or curse the nations who curse you. So Nahum says that God will restore the splendor of Jacob through his overthrow of Nineveh. Mighty men will attack Nineveh, and the Assyrians will fall in their defense. Women will be taken away, and the wealth of the city will be plundered. It will be laid to waste, the city that was once mighty like a lion. This is all going to happen because God is against them. God says he will, quote, burn up her chariots in smoke and cut off your prey from the land. Uh, so the author finishes his work with a description of Nineveh's complete ruin. The Assyrians are filled with, quote, lies and pillage. Nineveh has brought strife to others and enslaved some. Their arrogance is addressed much like it was in Isaiah 10. God says he is against them and will expose them. He will make them filthy and vile. He will also expose the city's weakness. The city will be taken and, quote, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. Assyria scattered God's people when they wiped out the northern kingdom. And now it says in verse 18 of chapter 3, they're, they're now scattered on the mountains. Their ways will be disrupted and there will be no relief for your breakdown. So um, significance here. Nahum shows that God does not allow sin to go unpunished. He has the ability to deal with this nation just like he has the ability to fulfill the promises of redemption. We can count on his promises and his effectiveness. We have the reference to Exodus. He's, he's uh, gracious and compassionate, yet he will not let, his, let sin go unpunished. And we see this just in these few books, right? We saw the gracious and compassion get offered and given to Nineveh and Jonah. Now we have just a couple books later, 100 years later in the chronology, he's actually uh, punishing sin this time. He cannot let sin go unpunished. Um, verse 13 of chapter 2. It's a good reference point here. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Um, it's an interesting way to say, I'm against you. This, is, this has to happen uh, because of your sin, because of what you've done. Um, so, again, it's about God's character. 
Do you ever doubt the effectiveness of God? Do you sometimes think that he won't do what he says he'll do? Does our society think this way? And how does, how does Nahum counter this thinking? Any thoughts here on the message of Nahum? Does our society know what he says? Hmm. Yeah. Well, certainly it, it, when, the, when they do, in general, they ignore it. They yeah. think it's not real or... Um, you know, I think Peter gets into this idea of um, people questioning if the Lord will really return, right? Um, certainly see that. God's timing is so different than ours that mm-hmm. we often think he's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's been 20 years, it's been 30 years, and still he hasn't done mm-hmm. But he's going to. Yeah. remember that even when God shows mercy, like when Nineveh repents, like Jonah, he still punishes that sin. Yeah. That sin was, was paid for in Christ. Yeah. And he bore that punishment. That's right. Yep. Any other thoughts here on God's character, message of Nahum? Still got a couple minutes. We're actually early. <laughs> Shockingly, we got through all four books. Yeah. Well, I would say people simply refuse to believe in him mm. because they feel like they are capable of doing themselves. They don't oh. need him. Yeah. And that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, it comes back to a pride issue. Yeah. I think you're right. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? All right, we got a couple more weeks here of uh, Minor Prophets. We'll be um, doing Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai next week, and then we'll uh, finish in two weeks with uh, the last two, Zechariah, which is a, a little bit longer book, still not a major prophet, but a little bit longer book as far as Minor Prophets go, and then finish up with Malachi in two weeks. So thanks, guys.